Good morning. My name's Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you will, grab a Bible and go to Exodus chapter 17. We are working our way through the book of Exodus, and we're going to finish out chapter 17 today. If you grab one of the blue Bibles that's under the chair in front of you, we'll be on page 34. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to own a Bible. Um, I, I like sleep. I've liked sleep my entire life. Um, I think it's a great blessing from the Lord. I was when I was little, my older brother didn't want to sleep, um, and I didn't want to go to bed by myself, but I would just be like, hey, let's, let's go to sleep. Like, I think it's bedtime, you know, and I would, like, put myself to bed early. Like, I have a son that does that now, and it's a blessing to a parent to have a child that's just like, all right, I'm done for the day. And we're like, all right, good, have, have, have a nice rest. Um, but I was like that uh, in college um, when other people were like, we're going to pull an all-nighter, we're going to study this. If I didn't know it by 11 p.m., I just wasn't going to know it. I got to sleep, you know? It's just like, I better luck next time, you know? I'm not staying up for this. Uh, and the most tired I have ever been, I wasn't in the military or anything. Uh, I did do some football camps, but the most tired I've ever been is the day that my second son was born. It was exhausting. Um, my, my first son uh, was, uh, he was born by a C-section, and that's, that was pretty easy, y'all. I just sat in the other room and hung out for a little bit, and then they, they called me in there, and they were like, all right, we're ready, and I was like, cool, me too, and then they, uh, they pulled this angry pink thing out, and they just are like, boom, you're dad, here you go, and it was, I mean, it was, it was straightforward. It took like 15 minutes. There's nothing to it. Um, my wife tells it a little differently, but, you know, it was pretty, <laughs> it's pretty simple, and um, so I, we were going in for a C-section for our second one. And so we had, had to, we had got up early in the morning to get over there. I think the C-section was scheduled for like 9 in the morning. Um, and they, uh, so we had to get up pretty early to get over there. And we get over there. And as they're about to take her to back to, to like prepper, and I was just going to like get to hang out, listen to an audio book, or, you know, play Candy Crush on my phone or whatever, um, <laughs> her water breaks. And so she's like, well, if he's just going to come on on his own, we'll just do that. I was like, cool, sounds good. You know, I've seen TV shows before, water breaks, baby's here in like three minutes. And uh, I was like, this might even be quicker, you know, more straightforward. And uh, he didn't, he just did he wouldn't, I don't know what he was doing in there, but he wasn't, he wasn't coming on out. And so we were there all day, you know, and she gets to like lay, but they don't like make it nice for me. I got like a chair, but you know, I just have to like pace around over there. At one point in the evening, so this was like 9 in the morning. We'd been up since like 5 a.m. At one point around 5 or 6 in the evening, I was just like, phew, I was gassed. You know, I had to, had to go to Russia's and get myself a chicken sandwich to keep my strength up. Um, and, you know, it's hard to eat a chicken sandwich in a room with someone who's in labor, but I, I fought through. And uh, at about 3 a.m., I mean, they were just dragging this thing out. At about 3 a.m., he finally shows up, and when he shows up, you don't get to be like, cool, we did it, let's go to sleep. No, you have to like weigh them and clean them and meet them and that sort of thing. And so it was like six or seven in the morning when we're finally getting to, to get some sleep. And I was tired. It had been a long day. And it's hard to, to tell your wife who's just labored that amount of time how exhausted you are. Like you really, you shouldn't do it. You can do it. But she's just going to look at you angrily. I mean, you shouldn't, but it, you can. Now, <laughs> uh, that's the worst way to tell that story. 
That's the, that's, a, that's the worst way to tell the story of the birth of my second son. And the whole time you're listening to it, you're like, you've got, like, the focus is in the wrong place. Like, the main characters should be, like, my wife and my son, maybe the doctors. I, I should mostly just tell you kind of what happened there. Uh, but I moved the spotlight mostly just for fun and to stress you out. Um, <laughs> now, when we read this story that we're about to read in Exodus... When you first read it, it feels the same. It feels like there's a story and the spotlight should have been over here, but instead it's here. It should have been out there, but instead it's here. And what we see is that when the Bible does that, it does that for a purpose. That the reason this story is told the way that it is, and when you're reading your Bible, you need to be able to consider... Why was this told this way? Why am I given this information? When you're reading something, it's also often helpful to think, what did it not tell me? What would I have thought to include that it didn't? Because it does that on purpose. The, the authors of the scriptures do that on purpose. The Holy Spirit, as he works through people, does that on purpose. So, as we read this this morning, we're going to see that it seems like the story, the retelling of the story might be shifted, but it's shifted for a purpose. So let's pray, and then we'll read this together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you include what we need. We don't always get all the answers that we want. We don't always get the, uh, everything that we would come and ask of the scriptures, but we get exactly what we need. We get exactly what we should have asked for. And so, Lord, we thank you um, this morning that we get to study the Bible together as your people. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would, would work and move and testify to your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 17, we're going to read uh, the back half of it, so we're going to start in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So we've been following the Israelites as they've left Egypt and they're traveling, and now they're attacked. And it feels in the text like it's out of nowhere, and I think it felt to the Israelites almost like this was out of nowhere, that suddenly they're attacked. They're just trying to travel through the wilderness, and Amalek comes and attacks them. Now, it's not clear as to whether or not this was actually Amalek the person or Amalek the people, because it refers to Israel as Israel the people. Not The person Israel is not there, it's his people, but we don't know enough about Amalek to know, was this Amalek and the Amalekites, or was it just the Amalekites that come and attack? But they're attacked. We do find, uh, that's most of the information that's given us here, we do in Deuteronomy, it references this, and it says this in Deuteronomy 25, 17, and 18, this will be up there. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. So that colors it in for us a little more. As the Israelites travel, there's some people who are lagging behind. Some people who are faint and weary. It's hard to travel through the wilderness. And so the Amalekites wait until they think, okay, this is the right time to attack, and they cut off the tail. They cut off this group of the Israelites to, to take as slaves or to take their plunder, and so they break through, and so it seems like the first round goes to Amalek. The first attack works, and so they're going to have to respond to the fact that the Amalekites have jumped in here 
and cut them, cut off a portion of the people and kind of won the first strike. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, Joshua, this is his first appearance. But Joshua becomes a big deal to the people of Israel. He is the one who ultimately helps claim the promised land. But this is the first time he's ever mentioned, and it just mentions him out of nowhere like we would know him. It doesn't introduce him at all. It just says, Moses said to Joshua. And so Joshua apparently has been around, apparently has been competent, so that Moses would look at him and say, you're going to lead the army. You've got to go pick men to fight. This is the other thing is that these were slaves. They had some weapons, but it wasn't trained men. This wasn't something that they had spent time doing. These were people who had made bricks, who had labored. And so he just looks at Joshua and says, we gotta, we got to fight. So you got to go pick some men, and we're going to fight, and you're going to go fight, and I'm going to go up on the, the hill of, uh, with the staff of God in my hand. So that would be the staff that Moses had used to strike the rock, the staff that Moses had used at the parting of the Red Sea, the staff that struck the Nile. So this is uh, an instrument that God has worked through, and he says, I'm going to take that, I'm going to go stand on the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. It's the first time Hur is mentioned. We find out later that he's somebody's granddad, so it seemed like he's older. Moses and Aaron are brothers. They're both in their 80s. They go up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Okay. Moses has a staff. He says, Joshua, you're going to go fight. I'm going to take a staff of God. I'm going to go up on the hill. He goes up on the hill with Aaron and Hur. The battle begins. And the way this reads seems like Moses just holds his hands up, holds the staff out as they go to fight. He's watching. But at some point... The battle's going, it's going well. Joshua's winning. He lowers the staff. He's watching. When he lowers the staff, the Amalekites start winning, start pushing back. And so he's watching. I don't know if he thinks, I need to raise it again, or if he just does, because he's, you know, so he raises the staff back up. And when he does, the Israelites start winning again. All we're told is what it says. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. I don't know how clearly and how quickly that was figured out. But at some point, it becomes clear to Moses, this staff has to stay up. As long as it's up, Israel's winning. So Moses... Starts holding the staff above his head and keeping the staff up. Now, that's a difficult thing to do. 
He's holding this staff up. And what it says is, verse 12, but Moses' hands grew weary so that at some point his arms are shaking. He feels his muscles burning and hurting, pain ripping through him. He's shifting his weight. You ever had to hold something for a while? You start trying to find the position that'll help you do it. And it says that his hands grow weary so that he can't keep it up anymore. Now, if you were somewhere being tortured and they told you, hold this above your head, and when it drops, we're going to strike you. Someone stood behind you and hit you with a whip. That's ample motivation to try to keep it up. But at some point, you might decide, I don't care. I'll take the beating. And there might be somewhere in your brain some amount of toughness or bravery there. But if you're holding this up and if it drops, you aren't hurt. Your people are. You watch as the battle turns. You watch as those in front of you begin to be killed. Moses has got to keep this staff up. It says his arms grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So they do this as long as the sun's out, it seems. They went out in the morning. He went up there fairly early, I would assume. They've held him like this for hours. It's a new CrossFit challenge. Hold a stick above your head all day long. I've got to put this up or I'm going to play with it while I talk. So they bring a stone to him, which makes me think that from where they were, he couldn't move back to the stone to be able to keep seeing or to keep the staff up. So they bring a stone to him, and then Aaron and her help him hold his arms up. And as long as his arms are up, as long as the staff's up, they prevail. Then it says this, verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, it seems like if you were going to tell the story of Joshua leading a military incursion, leading battle to go rescue Israelites that had been cut off by the Amalekites, if you were going to tell that story, you wouldn't go, Joshua went and picked men. But there were three men he didn't pick didn't pick, octogenarians, and they went up the hill and tell the whole story, because the whole story is just Aaron, her, and Moses. But the reason the whole story is Aaron, her, and Moses is because Joshua, although it says he won the battle, he won the battle through the empowerment of God who worked miraculously through this staff that is raised. The reason the story is told this way is because this is actually the important part of the story. Unlike my story, which that was not actually the important part of the story. The reason it's told this way in the scriptures is because this is the part we need to see. That we need to understand that God miraculously brought salvation through this process. 
That's why it's shifted over to what would otherwise be an odd way to recount Joshua leading a, a successful battle. Now, before we move on from this section and kind of see in just a moment what the point of this story is, why this is included in Exodus, and why I think it's encouraging and helpful for us, I want to make a few observations that I just think are worth making in this section of the text as we understand how God works and kind of what life looks like as we try to follow him. First one I want to point out is what I just said, which is that God ultimately is the one who brings the victory. That's wildly encouraging for us, because if you belong to Jesus, you get to trust that God is ultimately the one who brings the victory, because there are times when it's hard, when we're losing, when it hurts, when it seems like all will be lost. There are times when you think, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end. I don't know if we're going to actually get out of this. And we get to trust that God miraculously works to bring us to the end. As Paul says, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to the end, to bring it to completion, to bring you to fulfillment in him, to be made new in him. And there's great hope in that and trusting in that the Lord is the one who brings the victory. But the other side of that that we need to see is how did he bring the victory? Well, Joshua had to go find men. They had to put gear on. They had to go fight. Aaron and her and Moses had to go hold the staff of God up. Moses had to hold it up all day long. They had to keep the staff of God up to the point that Aaron and her had to gather around him and keep his hands up. And that's also encouraging because the Lord is going to remake you into the image of Christ if you belong to him. If you're a Christian, you will be slowly but surely walking in repentance and growing in the image of Christ. But you're going to have to be there the whole time. I heard a comedian say one time, I'm sick of following my dreams. I just want to find out where they're going and catch up with them later. And I think sometimes that's the way we feel about the Christian life. I just would like to jump ahead to the place where I'm mature enough to handle this. I'd like to jump ahead to the place where I'm not tempted by this. I'd like to jump ahead to the place where I'm not caught up in this, where I'm not struggling with this, where I don't have to fight through. They say that if I'm a part of a community group for a little while, like long enough, eventually I'll love these people because the Holy Spirit will be at work in me. But phew, can I just jump to that part? And the reality is that you are going to grow, but you are going to have to be there the whole time. And that when this is over, who won? Well, Moses and Aaron and her and Joshua. It says that Joshua defeated them, and, and that, that's the reality. One of the things, I, I did an internship with a church, a, a residency before I was going to go plant, and one of the things they would do is they would, when things, good things had happened, they'd say, we'd like to thank Jesus and Tim for this. We'd like to praise Jesus and Sarah for this. And there's a reality to Jesus is the one who does the work, but also we're there and he's at work in us. And so there's some hope in the midst of difficulty that you get to walk in faithfulness. And sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes to you, it's going to feel like a lot of labor, but it's good and the Lord's at work in it. The third thing that I think is helpful for us to see 
is that we need each other. Sometimes to fulfill what God has planned, to work out what he's doing on earth, we need each other. This battle was not just won by Joshua. It was not just won by Moses. Y'all, this is hers big moment. Later we find out he's somebody's granddad, which is good, and that guy's important. But this is the moment when you want to hear her story. This is it. He held up one of Moses' arms. But y'all, Moses needed somebody to hold up one of his arms. And Joshua needed somebody to hold up one of Moses' arms. And we need each other. And that's very important for us to hear. Because in the United States, in the culture that we live in, it's easy to live without people. It is. We're, we're working to where, like, grocery shopping used to be one of the things that you were forced to, like, leave your house and have to be around humans for. And we're like, nah, let's fix that. Like, we're, we're getting to where we can, we can survive. We need each other, but we don't have to interact with each other. And, and there's part of us that really likes that. There's part of us that can get caught up in the friendships on television, and it somehow scratches the itch of having real friends. And that helps us feel like, okay, I belong to something when we don't. And we need to belong to each other. Some of y'all have been around for a while, and you have not yet gotten into a community group. And we've accosted you every Sunday. I mean, harassed you. And Lord willing, by his grace, we will not stop. But the truth is, you need people to know you, to walk in life with you. That for us to fulfill what God has called us to, we are meant to belong to each other. And that takes work. This week, you will have to walk out to your vehicle, crank it up. Drive to a place, get out and go be around other people. Lord willing, some of whom you find delightful. You'll have to talk and interact and you'll have to do that week in, week out. You'll have to spend time with the people, tell them what's going on in your life. But the truth is, God has ordained that as be a, a, for a means for you to grow into looking like Christ and for you to walk out what it means to follow Christ. And there are days when you won't make it without them. Now, the other reality to that is there are days when they won't make it without you. So you can't say to yourself, well, I'm okay right now. I'll go be a part of that when I need it. You can't say to yourself, well, if it's just, I mean, that's what it is, then I'm just going to tough this out on my own or they're going to slow me down or whatever. Part of God's design for them is you. And part of God's design for you is them, is us. That we're meant to belong to each other and that, that we need each other. I don't think, though, those are the main points. I don't think that's why this was written. I think this next section helps us understand it. I think the way the spotlight shifted in the story helps us understand it. So let's look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So they win. And then it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Write this down. Recite it. Write this down. Repeat it as a memorial. Take this moment. Write it down. And then repeat this. Remember what happened and repeat this. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. Now this altar would most likely not be one that they sacrificed on. It would just be a stone pillar to mark the place, to be a reminder of what God did here. And he said, The Lord is my banner. A banner is what you march behind into battle. It's what you rally to. It's what reminds you who you belong to and what tells the enemy who you belong to. And it's meant to give you courage and strike fear into their hearts. And he says, that's the Lord. He's the one. We march under his banner. He's the one we rally to. He's the one who wins. And he's the one who gets the victory after the victory. It goes to him. And he said, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So God says, remember this, write this down, remember this moment, and repeat this. I'm going to destroy Amalek, and I'm going to do it completely. Now, that, I believe, is the point of this story. Why it's recorded for us in Exodus. Is that God promised to wipe Amalek out. And as I was reading the commentaries, one of the commentaries said, We don't know anything about Amalek. We have no other historical references to them. There is no anything other than this place in the Bible. It's made some people say they never existed. But I just laughed. God did what he said he was going to do. We get this time where it was told to write them down. We get a few other mentions in Scripture of the full, complete, generation to generation blotting them out. But God fulfilled his promise. So that everybody else goes, we ain't ever heard of Amalek. And it's like, right, because he said you weren't ever going to hear of Amalek. (laughs) I believe that's the point of this story is for the people of Israel, for Joshua, who Joshua was going to have to lead the taking of the promised land, for him to know a couple of things. One is God brought the victory through Joshua. But he brought the victory, and he brought it through Moses, and he brought it through his miraculous work of the staff of God, and that God was going to fulfill the victory and make it ultimate, that he was ultimately going to win, and that they were going to rid themselves of the Amalekites. Now, that's important for a group of people that are going to have to go claim land. That's important for a group of people who are going to have to fulfill this promise, that are going to have to follow up, trusting that God is going to work this out. Spencer told me that when he was in Israel, that they sell t-shirts that's, that looks like kind of like a, a schedule for like a sports team. And the top name on the schedule was Amalek, and it was marked out. And then it was all the people that the people of Israel had defeated throughout history. And then it had one that they have a current conflict with at the bottom with like a question mark, basically like, are we going to go undefeated? <laughs> now, I appreciate that T-shirt. I think they wouldn't sell well in the U.S. if we made our own version of it. But I appreciate what the people of Israel are doing, and it, it illustrates this point. It illustrates this point that the reason this was retold was so that the people of Israel would remember who God is and what he's done. And church family, they recounted and remembered this because they needed to trust the Lord, they needed to gain hope, and they needed to act on it. Christians in the room, we have a better story to recount and to remember. We have a better victory and a better promise. We gather every Sunday. One of the first things we say is that we're here because we believe Jesus is better than everything else. 
We have gathered this morning to recount and to remember that Jesus Christ came, the perfect Son of God, sinless, to die in our place for our sin, that he was buried and that he rose again conquering the grave. And that all who believe in his name will be forgiven and will be saved and will be eternally rescued. And that this is not our home. That the things that we're struggling with right now, we can trust that a God who can conquer the grave can conquer that sin in us. That the things that we're worried about right now, that we can trust that a God who can conquer the grave and who loves us enough to die for our sins can rescue and redeem and remake us and that he has promised that our good things are not here. That we're traveling in the wilderness with a promised future and a promised land and a promised place of his presence where there is a delight at his right hand forevermore. And so I don't know what you're facing, but I know that there's a story that we were meant to write down and recite in our ears. Jesus Christ has victory over sin. Jesus Christ has victory over death. Jesus Christ has victory over our ultimate enemy, Satan. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever. And we are to remember that and act on it. We're to live in light of a resurrected Christ who saves those who call on him and will not fail. Who will not put to shame anyone who calls on his name. Who will not fail to cover the sin of those who come to him. Who will not fail in his redemption or his work. Who rose and conquered and rules. And may we recount and recite that all the time. May that be what we remember and press one another on towards. And may we reach the end by the grace of Jesus alongside one another as we belong to each other as church family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we have a victory in Christ accomplished through your work and your spirit. And we thank you that you bring us to the end full and complete. And that you will make war generation after generation for the glory of your name to conquer sin and death and hell. And that we have an eternal hope sealed in the resurrection of Christ. And may we praise your name and may we live like those redeemed by your blood and your work in Jesus' name. Amen. The band's going to come back up, and we're going to praise Jesus, and we're going to recount one more time. We're going to remember one more time the goodness of our Savior, the glory of our Lord, and we're going to praise his name.